Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. That's the question. Will you stand? As we look to Nehemiah this morning, we're going to be in this book this whole month. And i uh, warn you this morning, I am going to cover a lot of scripture. So just dial in with me, focus, and uh, we're all going to get something out of this uh, as we move into stand month. Um, we'd like to set the stage with this message for the rest of the month. Now, uh, first of all, when you're standing for something, you know that you obviously want to stand for what is the priority of God. Everything else should become secondary to that. That's what we're getting at, what's important to God. Because from the day we're born, we're born with this built-in default that says it's about me and what I want and what makes me happy and what I need. That's part of the whole sin nature. It drives us in one direction. It's about us. It's about me. And when that doesn't happen, then we get frustrated, we get unhappy, we get upset. But, but this is the human heart. And what we see in Nehemiah flies in the face of all of that. Everything that the culture would throw at us, Nehemiah kicks it back and says, no, there's a God priority present. What we prefer and what humanity prefers must come secondary to what God says is primary. What we want now, not what we want or what we prefer doesn't mean it's not important. It may be very important. It just becomes secondary to what God's will is in the season that we're in. And we need to be in glad submission to God's uh, will over our preferences or what we would want. That's the key. Therefore, in that way, you're always, in a sense, in pursuit of joy. Pursue that first, because then happiness will follow. That should be our pursuit. And this is not what our culture promotes. Our culture says you need to be happy in what you think is really important. Without that, you're going to be missing the mark. But God says, no, you really want to flourish, then don't pursue happiness, because it's cheap. It'll it'll, uh, betray you at every turn. You pursue joy because it's unshakable. It transcends every circumstance. It's it's rooted in God. Happiness is going to depend on all these happenings around you, but this joy is deeper than that. So what are we taking a stand on? That really determines what we're going to experience in life when it comes to happiness or joy. Culture will dictate one thing, but God says, no, my preference over yours. Preferences, uh, our preferences being secondary to God's, God's priority. And you see this played out in Nehemiah. It's really powerful when this man steps up, the man who's living in the ultimate comfort in the courts of the king, has it all, and yet finds out that there is a priority of God at stake. There's something that God presses in on him, and he... He says everything must become secondary, even his own life. Now, before we get to Nehemiah, to set it in context in history, we need to look at a few things here before we jump into the text to give us a clear picture of what's going on. Uh, 
and, and find and discover where Nehemiah and Ezra are in history. First of all, God calls Israel out from under the tyranny of Egypt and leads them up to the promised land in which they refused to enter because they did not believe God's word. And therefore, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. That whole generation dies out because they refuse to obey God's word. And then God utilizes Joshua through Joshua, leads them into the promised land, drives out the Canaanites. They become a nation. And they begin to look around and see these other nations and they say, hey, they have a king. We want a king too. God strongly advises them against that. But they were very insistent. We want a king. So God says, fine, I'll give you a king. He gives them Saul. King Saul's the first king. Hey, he's tall, well-built, handsome, strong king. All the guys wanted to be like him. And of course, all the girls loved him. That's their king. Except in Saul's journey, he began to slip. He began to disobey and began to rebel. And he offered sacrifices that were unacceptable to God. And it led to one thing, led to the next. And he was removed and replaced by David, who was a shepherd, a shepherd boy who played the harp. It's quite a transition. As a matter of fact, when David was out in the field with the sheep, the prophet Samuel showed up to select the king among his brothers. They were all lined up, and Samuel looks them over and asks the dad, is this all your boys? His dad says, yeah, well, actually, no. The youngest is out in the field with the sheep, but you're not really interested in him. Look at these guys. Of course, God was very interested in David, and he has chosen, and Israel flourishes under his leadership. He crushes the pagan nations around him. Then when David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon builds the temple for the Lord. The glory of God enters the temple. Powerful. And the Lord, uh, the peace of God reigns, and the influence of David continues, and Israel becomes a regional power. And it's flourishing. Then something happens after uh, Solomon. We run into some trouble. The nation of Israel is fractured into two kingdoms. And you have a northern kingdom now. And you have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. And the southern kingdom is called Judea. And the northern kingdom didn't do so well. They had one wicked king after another wicked king. After another wicked king. After another wicked king. Until finally 722 BC. The Assyrians laid siege to the northern kingdom. And all the Israelites are deported and uh, spread across uh, the empire. Judea did a little bit better. They had a godly king, and then they had a wicked king and a wicked king. Then they had a godly king, and then we kind of go back and forth. Until after 136 years after the northern kingdom was conquered and deported and exiled, the southern kingdom of Judea falls not by the Assyrians, but now by the Babylonians. Because now they're the ones ruling the world at this time in history. Now the Babylonians export and deport the remaining Israelites in the southern kingdom. Spread them out across the ancient world as slaves and servants to the Babylonian empire. Not a very pretty picture. Then Persia shows up and wants to run the show. So the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And uh, those, those, remember, those were the guys who conquered the Assyrians. And now Persia Empire is the one in control of the ancient world. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, the Holy Spirit presses in upon Cyrus, the king of Persia, that a portion of the Jews should be released to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's where you get the book of Ezra. 
Now, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are kind of happen simultaneously here in history. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple within the city, and Nehemiah is about building the walls around that city, protect, protecting everything once again inside. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. We see the restoration from the rubble. It begins. Let's read this. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. Really bad situation. Now, in ancient times, gates and walls were just about as important to a city as an army. Without the walls, the city would be controlled by, it could actually could control its own affairs. It would be dictated by all these outside forces that had ready access. The city without walls and gates were at the mercy of band of marauders, outside forces that could come in and take whatever they wanted, and there is no way to direct or defend or resist any kind of intrusion. So this is a big deal. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 25, 28, it says this. Like a city whose walls are broken through, a person who lacks self-control. That's what they're like. In other words, they can't control their own affairs. They're open to influences and intruders that would punch through and run them over. They can't take their stand against intruders. And we're talking about stand month. And that may require some of us here today to stand against those forces that have been pushing you around. Take your stand. There are cities without walls today. Some of our large cities, called sanctuary cities, have opened themselves up to illegal, illegal immigration and leave them unchecked and causes all kinds of problems. They've been overrun. We have cities today where their policies have greatly weakened, dismantled, or diminished their police forces or their justice system. And they have become very dangerous to live because they have been broken through. They're without walls of protection. We see this everywhere now. It's, it's a disaster. It's a dumpster fire is what it is. What flourishes in an environment that has broken walls, I'll tell you what flourishes, is our anarchy, violence, and selfishness. It's the default that begins with, I want what I want regardless. It's all about me, and it works itself out in violence. And you see it played out in many large cities around. Now, when Hanani tells Nehemiah that the people are in great trouble and disgrace, they're ashamed and they're broken down, it gets his attention. Something inside him is gripped. He's thinking, where's the justice? Where's the mercy and the compassion? How could this happen to my own people? And he's gripped with a sense of responsibility at this point. And we see Nehemiah's response in verse 4. It says this, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. Wow. Nehemiah hears Hananiah that Jerusalem's walls are broken down, the gates are burned, and Nehemiah, he basically collapses. His knees are knocked out from under him, and he weeps for days and begins to fast and call upon God. Now, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. 
in the palace of a king of Persia. Now, he lives in uh, roughly 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Why is he so distraught and so done, undone over this? Why is he so uh, traumatized, in a sense, in his emotions? I mean, his, his, his role is a cupbearer. That means, basically, uh, he samples the food and the wine that's given to the king so the king cannot be poisoned. He's basically this advisor to the king, and he's living in luxury. He's got the best wine in the world. I mean, he's got it made. He's far away from all the suffering, uh, he doesn't even have to really think about what's going on to uh, way 800 miles away. They're out of sight and out of mind, right? What can I do? I'm 800 miles away. I'm just one guy. I'm not that talented. I don't have the resources. It's just me. What can I do, right? I could just kind of exclude myself. I mean, I don't even know these people, right? I barely know some of them. Yet, instead, he is knocked to the ground, and he's undone. And he begins to weep and fast before God, asking God to act. And at that point, Nehemiah's journey begins. He, that's where he begins to take this stand. And he first does it in prayer. He falls to the ground and prays, and then he stands and he acts. It always begins and ends in prayer. All through this book, take note. Whenever Nehemiah is talking or he's acting, he's always Praying. He's always calling upon God. He's always, even in the midst of his conversation with the king, he says, I began to pray. He began to call upon God because he knew it, it was, if, it, if God wasn't involved, it was not going to happen. He was desperate for his God. And, and you see this all through. And so that's where his stand begins. And whenever God presses in upon you concerning something that's on his heart, that he's calling you to do. My friends, the first place you need to camp out, the first place you need to go is sit before God and begin to talk to him. Begin to pray. Begin to ask him for specifics and for strategies and begin to stir, allow him to stir the things in you and, and what he's doing in you. Become a part of that. Let that grip your soul. Let that, let that knock you to the ground. Let that bring you to a place of glad submission to your king and say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in and through me. Let it happen there. Let it start there and stay there through your journey and you'll succeed wildly. Amen? Oh, you will. You will. That's a good place to ponder right there. Because it began actually with Nehemiah listening. He listened to his brother. And are we listening to what the Spirit is saying in the hour we're in? What is God whispering to us? Or when he does, do we go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. No, 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 I'm not, I can't do it. I'm not talented enough. I got an excuse, excuse. No, 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 I don't want to, just, I'm over here. I can't do anything. No, God says, listen, I'm talking. Listen, what is he saying? What is he saying to you throughout this journey through the month of August? What is he going to speak to you about? Have that sense of expectancy. God, what are you going to call me to stand? We see, what we see here, though, is we see the passion and the empathy, empathy and the response of Nehemiah. Why is that so clear in Scripture? Is this something God wants us to see because maybe it's something he wants you and I to experience even now? Could that be? Could that be the possibility for us? God says, I want you to register something. I think there may be points in life where we feel and we're bothered and we're weighted with what weights and bothers God and what moves his heart moves us and what, 
what breaks his heart breaks ours. And that only happens, happens when we stop and just, okay, I listen. Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm not gonna ignore what you're saying in this hour because there are those hurting outside, there's those hurting inside, and I don't wanna ignore it. This is where the church should stand, outside the culture that says, hey, worry about numeral, numeral, number one. Don't worry about the other stuff. It's all about you. You need to have a break today, and you, it's, no. God says, mm-mm. Nehemiah is going to fly in the face of all that and says the priority of God is upon us. And what matters to God must be a priority to us. Deuteronomy, interesting verse 16, 17 says this, chapter 16, verse 17. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, what, what, God, what is God just saying in that little verse? He's saying, look, when God blesses us, our response to that blessing of God is not to hoard that blessing for myself, but to steward it well. Because it's not about me, it's about the priority of God. What, what can I bring to the table that flies in the face of our culture? We are to enjoy God's blessings. Yes, the Bible says he's given everything to us for our enjoyment. But actually, the thing, the, here's the deal with that verse. It's not to end with us. When God blesses us, it was never to end or to terminate with us, but to flow through us. There should be a release so that more can come in for the purpose of God. Because everything else then becomes secondary to God's priority. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8 and 10. You see this riddle through the scriptures, the heart of God being released. As it says here, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. You see the heart of God coming through as he says, this is what my church is about. The empathy and the reaching out and the, and the priority of God. In the midst of our own blessing, in the midst of our own human flourishing, let's stay focused and missional with God. What is his priority? Even through this month, let that magnify over our own lives and hearts. Caring for those he calls us to care for. We need to grasp what's happening in Nehemiah. He's undone and he's gripped by the reality of his people that are in great trouble and distress. Distress. And what does he do? He goes to heaven and he storms heaven and he begins to pray. Let's read the next few verses here. Verses five through 11. It says, then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you today, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, I have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, the laws that you gave your servant Moses. What's interesting here is Nehemiah is an upstanding man and he may not have been the one to to sin or to walk in rebellion and, and uh, create all this, these problems. He may, have not, he may have not done any of that, yet he's owning it. We call it identificational repentance, where we stand in the gap. We say, God, I'm not innocent either. I join my ancestors and I join my family. I join my people today. Our hands are dirty. We are guilty before you. And we repent and say, come, Lord Jesus, Bring us back once again. And we identify, to give you a better picture of this, 
Let's take abortion, for example. You may have never directly been involved in abortion, but maybe you have been selfish. Have anybody in here ever been selfish? Selfishness is one of the roots to abortion. So we can all stand and identify and say, God, we have done wrong. We identify. And it, comes, it brings you to that place of empathy, of understanding, of acknowledging, of humility, and it gets God's attention. Well, at any rate, I can't go any further on that, but he goes on to say, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among, or if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people and at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So powerful as he begins to declare the promises of God back to God. What a release of faith that happens. I want to encourage you when you're contending for something in prayer to grab a hold of God's promises and declare them. It's powerful. This is a great model of prayer. And then he goes on to say, they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. So he's asking God, move on the heart of the king on my behalf. Oh God, let there be supernatural favor in this moment that I will have permission to do what I must do. That I may find my release. That's what he's praying. He asks God to make a way for him as he appeals to the king. And here he is, Nehemiah, putting his own life and future on the line. Saying, God, it's not about me or what I want. Now that becomes secondary to the priority of God. And therein lies true fulfillment and joy for every believer who would follow after Jesus. What is important to you, God, now? What are you saying to me in this hour that we're in? When you prioritize the purpose of God above our own agenda, it's amazing how the doors will be kicked open. And you hear a yes from heaven. You sense this, I got heaven backing me in this. There's such faith that's released. It gets God's attention. That's actually the danger in asking when you go to prayer because when you align yourself with the heart of God and his purpose, you step into a whole nother place. You step into uncharted territory. It's like when that happened to Nehemiah, I think he probably stopped and went, oh my gosh, what did I just do? What did I get myself into? You ever done that? You ever step out in faith in areas and then you go, I'm in over my head. I have done that so many times. I did that when I started this church. It's like, oh, I'm in over my head. What am I thinking, God? This is impossible. Well, man, it is impossible, but with God. And so he comes into alignment because you come out of these dangerous places. You come out, now you're in risky places. Now you're in deep water, right? Now you're, it's full of uncertainties. And the only thing that's certain is that God is on your side. You got God with you. That's the only thing that's certain. That's a beautiful place to be. Nehemiah goes before the king and he makes his request. Verse one and two of chapter two. In the month of Nisan, in the 12th, and that's not a car, by the way, Nisan. In the 12th year of King Artaxes, it says, when the wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in this presence before. So the king is asking me, why does your face look sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. You know why he was afraid at that moment? <laughs> Let me tell you what, he's taking a chance because you, he couldn't hide his grief and that is so dangerous. 
You just did not enter the king's court. You could be in danger of execution if you uh, brought improper etiquette into the king's court. If you came in with downcast countenance and you were discontent and sad before the king, oh, you just did not do that before the king. You were supposed to put on your happy face. No happy face that day. He couldn't hide it. He takes, he takes the chance. He puts his life on the line. He says, God, you're with me. You'll protect me. And I'm, I'm not only will you protect me, but I'm going to get favor from this king. And he brings his request before the king. And that too could be interpreted as disloyal when you're talking about the Israelites. And that could be interpreted in all kinds of different ways. But Nehemiah is basically saying, no, this is about the purpose of God the priority of God. Everything else, even my life, is secondary at this point. And he throws it on the line. I told you you're going to re- read a lot of scriptures, but this is the last part of the passage. Let's read it. It says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant was found favor in your sight, Let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked him, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And he, he said, if it pleases the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct or yeah, conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make the beams and the gates of the citadel, the temple of the city, wall, and all the residents I will occupy. So here he is. He's not only asking for the king's permission. Now he's asking for letters of authority to give to governors and people who own things. I mean, this is, this is amazing. He says, and because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. It's a miracle. And it says, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent an army of officers and cavalry with me. He sent a platoon with him on top of that to protect them. And then here it is, you guys, when Samballat and the Hornonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Whenever you step into the will of God and come alignment with his purposes, his priorities, you'll get hell's attention too. Because now the enemy's raising its ugly head. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you will see the resistance. You'll see the taunts. You'll see the intimidations. You'll see the enemy raise its ugly head. But you must be prepared for that. That's why you go to prayer. That's why you're always talking to God and you're drawing your strength for the one who can protect you because spirit must confront spirit and you will be confronting spirit when you're dressing and moving forward in God's purpose for your life. The enemy will not just sit back and let you have it all. He will resist you every step of the way, but God will use it for his glory and for your gain. If you follow him and talk to God, get ready, get ready, get ready. You're going against the current. It's the danger in asking, putting God's agenda first when the journey begins. 
And everything Nehemiah has asked for is granted, and he gets letters, and he gets the authority of the king. And you must understand, when you're serving the purpose of God, you're walking in his authority. And he has given you the letter of authority. It's written across your life. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. Hell sees it, and he knows you can't do anything about it but intimidate and the lie. And the only way you can be defeated is by believing a lie. Don't believe the lie. Walk in the truth. Stand fast in God's promises. I'll have the worship team come out. I remember uh, I was just debating on sharing this. I, I, I don't want to, I'm not tooting my own horn. Please understand that. I'm just sharing an experience that was really pivotal. Way back in probably in the 90s, mid-90s, when I was youth pastoring, I had a lot of youth, sprawling youth ministry was growing, and I had students in every school pretty much in the valley here, from Houston High middle school to Palmer, middle school, Colony, both schools, Wasilla, all across. And some of the schools, we had Bible clubs in them and they were doing their thing and they were student-led. And I would go to all these, on different days, I'd go to all the schools and spend lunch with them. And I, so I was always, one day I was always at some school and just showing up, encouraging the kids. And, and uh, I got this opportunity to bring Dave Reaver, the number one national speaker in the nation, with Reggie Dobbs, who was like, amazing, and his whole team of speakers to the valley to be in all these schools and hold full school assemblies. And this was like, this was like a huge opportunity. I couldn't even believe it fell on my lap. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Man, but I thought, I got to get to work. So I started like eight months out visiting every administrator in school, making appointments with his principals, sitting down with them, presenting the material, talking about Dave Reaver and all these guys, what a blessing they've been to schools. We're not promoting church or nothing like that, or Jesus can't do that. But, you know, we're here. I'm, I'm on your side. I want to help kids. You want to help kids. This is a great opportunity. These guys are amazing, and we got to get them into schools. And they were like, yeah, this is great. And they all started coming into alignment. Some of them were a little afraid, but they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. And we worked. I worked. I mean, I would meet with these guys on, and we'd, I'd come back and have more meetings. And we got it all set up across all the schools. It was going to be made. We're going to blitz it in like two days, just blitz. And we were coming up to that point. I'm excited, and we're praying, and we're talking, and we're excited. I mean, everything's, you know, just really great, and this is going to be huge. And then about a day before, they're supposed to get on the plane that night and fly up to Alaska. Somebody in the community rose up against me, a Tobiah, <laughs> one of those guys, and said, you're proselytizing. You can't bring this into the schools. This is, you know, church and state and all that nonsense. And he, he's trying to shut the whole thing down. And then he's calling, calling administrators and principals and talking to them and putting fear in them. Boy, you do this, you better not do this. You might get sued and blah, 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 blah. I mean, this was terrible. And now they're backing out. And I'm like, wait a minute, these guys are flying up here tonight. You can't. And one of the administrators said, look, if you want this to happen, you're going to have to be at the school board meeting tonight. There just happens to be one tonight. You got to get there and get your name on the list. I'm like, I don't do this kind of stuff. What do you say? I mean, I was freaking out. I was like, I'm not a, I don't do this kind of, I'm a youth pastor. Come on. I'm like on the bottom of the ocean kind of guy, right? And, and who's going to look at me? And so um, I called Dave Reaver. And I said, Dave, man, they're trying to shut this down. I mean, they are shutting it down. Right now, it's a no-go. What am I going to do? And he says, Bro, you need to get this going. He says, this is what I want you to say. And he gave me his talking points and he coached me and he cheered me. And he fired me up and got me going again. He says, you get in there and you're going to get that meeting tonight. And you're going to make things happen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Okay, so, so I go to the meeting, I put my name on the list, I'm at the very bottom of this list, and I don't know what was going on that night, but the place was packed. And, and there was some of the teachers who attended our church there, Christians and, and different people, and, and they got wind it was happening, and people started showing up, so word spreads fast, let me tell you. And I, I was there for like almost two hours waiting for my name to be called. Finally, my name gets called, and I'm freaking out. I'm just in the back praying, and you know, I'm just seeking God and storming heaven and freaking out, and I'm, I'm just dying, man. And, and finally, Chris Miller, I'm like, oh, this is the moment. And I get up there, and I sit at this table, just me, looking at all these school board members. And you feel like, you know, the little guy in the spotlight? Like, deer in the headlights, man. I'm telling you, I was freaking out. But I prayed, and I could just feel courage of God come on me. And I just started saying, hey, I've thrown it down. This is, we've been planning this for months. Dave Reaver, number one speaker in the nation. Reggie Dobbs, all these guys are coming. We're going to do school assemblies. I said, we're here on your side. I'm here for kids too. You know, come on, we can do this together and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't know about it. They're like starting, well, some of them did. So they're starting this conversation back and forth. And then one of the school board members that would normally oppose something like this, she kind of speaks up, says, hey, I think I want my kid to hear these guys. I'm like, oh, this is good, you know? And so then, there, then there's this debate going on and people are, in the audience are raising their hand and stuff like this and people are starting to debate and, and it's getting hot and it's getting tense in there and temperatures are kind of flaring a little bit. And, and then they finally says, okay, hey, we got to take a break here, recess. We got to discuss this then we're going to come back with a vote. And then as soon as they did that, that guy who was against me goes up and starts whispering in their ears. I couldn't believe it. He's right behind him doing this. I'm like, this is so demonic. I was like, I rebuke you in Jesus' name, you demon. And so, anyway, story goes on. Pretty soon I'm standing there, I'm sweating it out. And all of a sudden, these reporters are coming to me. They're starting to interview me. I'm like, this is just too weird, you know? I can't do this. I got to talk to reporters. They're going to probably take my story and mess it all up and everything. It's just, it was really wild. And just all kinds of stuff going on. So finally, the big vote's going to happen. We all sit down. Hear a pin drop in that place. They all vote, and we won by one vote. <laughs> and I'm like, Pfft. I mean, I almost fell out of my chair. Everybody's in the room, yeah, people are cheering, you know. And I had one school administrator who stood up and testified on my behalf. He put his, probably his job on the line. That guy's a hero, and he was amazing. And uh, Reaver and the team came up. We blitzed the schools. Standing room only in those gyms. Not only that, the bad guys, I call them the bad guys. They sent lawyers in the balcony to spy to try to catch them saying one thing wrong so they could, you know, launch a lawsuit or whatever. We had all these people surrounding and sneaking around. But they just kept getting standing ovations. I mean, kids were crying. Teachers were crying. It was unbelievable. It was one of those, yes! And then the next day, the whole front page of the local paper plus another whole page on the inside came out singing the praises to Dave Reaver and his team and I even had my name in there. It was so weird. And, and how such a blessing that these guys came up to the schools and how dare people try to stop this. We're trying to help our kids. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like God came in and he just kicked the door in. And I'm telling you, my friends, I'm, I'm just telling you this because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just running forward while the door was open. 
And when God opens the door and you have the priority of God on your heart and you know he's called you to something, you pray and you go after it. You be like a dog with a bone. Don't let go. And God is going to kick doors open when you take your stand because God loves it when you do that kind of stuff. I want to encourage you with that. Let's stand together. We gotta, we're going to close in this song here. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.